Hello, listeners of Warlords of History podcast. As you know, this fantastic show began by covering one of the most interesting but most forgotten warlords in history. This was Amir Timur, sword of Islam, son-in-law to Genghis Khan, and conqueror of a vast empire. If you want to continue that deep dive into Timur's life that this show so brilliantly handled, then you might be interested in the Timur Podcast, which is the show that I host. The aim of the Timur Podcast is to investigate the life, character, conquests, and legacy of Amir Timur. We discuss the political and historical background to Timur, the history of the Timurid dynasty, and then, of course, the life of Timur himself. If you want to know more, you can find everything about the Timur Podcast at timurpodcast.com or find the show wherever you listen to other podcasts. And with that said, let's head north to hear about this next warlord of history. In 793 at a Christian monastery on the small island of Lindisfarne, just off the coast of northeastern England. The cataclysmic raid that would impact this small corner of the world was in fact a defining event in world history, marking the beginning of the Viking Age. An almost 300-year reign during which Scandinavian warlords and seafarers controlled the waterways of the Baltic, North Sea, and beyond. Few were able to prevent the unabating waves of these powerful and unforgiving military leaders crashing upon the shores and sailing up the rivers of foreign lands in their iconic longships, violently despoiling and plundering only to disappear back into the sea and then reappear again and again. Not all were simply raiding, looking to extract riches and return home. Subsequent waves included ocean explorers and settlers that were in search of new and productive lands to carve out a living. By the dawning of the first millennium and Svein Forkbeard's lifetime, the Viking Age was approaching its twilight years. Far from a quiet goodnight though, this would also coincide with some of their most monumental achievements constructed by the hands of brutal leaders like Forkbeard that emerged out of a turbulent time. There was something else at play, however, something that was clearly present during his lifetime. A war of a different sort, a conflict of ideologies and core beliefs that would in time swallow the Vikings whole, Christianity. So, while this story certainly follows the life, motivations, and achievements of a prolific Viking warlord, another underlying theme is prevalent throughout. A story of different worlds colliding and melding into one another, intertwined and ultimately changed forever. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord, fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history, some with more lasting effects and others that were rather short-lived, but certainly no less interesting. That said, 
When I select a particular warlord, I of course plan to review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime, we'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser known subjects, such as the feature of this episode, Svein Forkbeard. Svein was born, grew up, and eventually came to power during an extremely challenging time in Denmark's history. Newly united, yet wrestling with internal strife and factionalism, external empires and institutions attempting to exert influence on Danish sovereignty, in particular, the powerful Holy Roman Empire, which also coincided with the imposition of Christianity upon their people conflicting with their Norse gods, and there were always other Viking leaders or pretenders to leadership, hungry to take over each other's kingdom. Granted, Svein himself certainly fits that bill as well. Svein, who later took on the name Forkbeard, as per the Viking custom to take on a name featuring a descriptive characteristic of the person, attributed this to the magnificent beard that he always had styled in a cleft or forked fashion. And beyond his fancy beard, he had a natural charisma about him, the kind that drove people to love him and bind themselves to him, to the detriment of others. But he could also be horrific in his wrath to his enemies, as a fully capable warrior and military leader, leaving trails of destruction in his wake without remorse. For example, he took on and fought his very own father to wrestle the Danish crown from his hands but then would experience significant setbacks and battle losses in his rise to power, facing the utter ruin and loss of everything. Yet, to his credit, he continued to find cunning ways or long-term strategies to move forward and not be dissuaded from achieving his ultimate goals. And then, once in power, Svein demonstrated a savvy ability to rule, overcoming the challenges his kingdom was facing to achieve a relative period of peace and stability, thereby allowing him to focus on the goal he had boasted about during his coronation, an achievement so audacious that no Viking warriors were able to contemplate before him, conquering and becoming the first Viking king of England in 1013. Before we get into the unpacking of Svein Forkbeard's story, I have to add in a quick disclaimer of sorts that the Viking sagas that I partially relied upon to understand these events, while fascinating, are laden with myths built into them and conflicting accounts of these events. And then there's others, such as Adam of Bremen, a German medieval chronicler that had an axe to grind against Forkbeard and that gave him notoriously bad press for specific reasons that we'll get into later. Over the next couple of episodes, as we dive into this story of this ruthless and calculating Viking warlord, I'll endeavor to put forward the sequence of events that I think makes the most sense to me based on the accounts that I've come across. And as we travel along the path, 
I'll also be sure to point out some of the other feasible alternative events that may have occurred. In order to understand the social and political environment at the time of Svein's birth, although we touched on what this looked like at the top end of this episode, to get a better view of this, we'll start with Forkbeard's father, King Harald Bluetooth, who played a fundamental role into how Denmark was configured at the time, and to current times as well, at the very least geographically. In his youth, Likely sometime during the 940s, he co-led raids in the British Isles over a period of approximately four years, hauling home massive amounts of treasure that would be used to fund future building projects and armed conflicts. The saga of Olaf Tryggvason details how Harald and his older brother, who would later be killed in this endeavor, sailed on an expedition to Northumbria, an early medieval Anglo-Saxon kingdom that today geographically includes northern England and southeastern Scotland. Bluetooth held a firm sense of entitlement over these lands in England, because it was the land that the sons of the legendary Danish and Swedish king Ragnar Lothbrok had conquered, and that subsequently thousands of Nordic descendants would come to settle, becoming known as the Danelaw. This sense of entitlement would later be passed on to his eldest son Svein, who would take this idea and expand upon it during his future reign. Bluetooth inherited the Danish throne from his father, Gorm the Old, upon his death in 958, just two years before Svein's birth in 960. There are conflicting accounts of Svein's mother being either a woman named Gunhild or Tova, and still others that suggested he was born from a mistress, though this may have been a story weaved by adversaries, looking to delegitimize his claims to power later on. Now, this was a turbulent time in Scandinavian history, with large parts of Denmark still at war, including Norway, which was essentially viewed by some as a northern province of Denmark. In part, because Bluetooth, upon assuming the reins of leadership, continued one of the key endeavors that his father had commenced, and is credited with unifying all of Denmark into one kingdom. Being that this was primarily achieved through military force, factionalism and pockets of discontent remained within the populace, with Bluetooth making internal enemies in getting to this achievement. As a side note, the traditional explanation of how he gained the name Bluetooth is that he likely had a noticeably bad tooth that looked to be discolored, kind of blackish blue in color. And as a side side note, and a potentially useless fact to throw out a party or your next online meeting to appear highly sophisticated, some of you, at this very moment in fact, may be using that wireless technology that allows for the exchange of data between different devices, called Bluetooth. This is the person that this brand name and symbol comes from. The shapes in the center of that blue logo are runes, representing the letters H and B, the initials for Harold Bluetooth uniting devices in a similar manner that he united Denmark into a single kingdom. Back to the main story. In addition to the remaining internal strife, although this was somewhat muted for now, Bluetooth also had to be wary of external forces, with the most threatening being the Juggernaut Empire directly to the south of Denmark, more specifically the southern reaches of the Jutland Peninsula 
whose contested borders were shared with the Holy Roman Empire, the preeminent European superpower of the time that was only getting stronger and gaining momentum, with its massive domains roughly including modern-day Germany south to the northern half of Italy. When looking at the maps and comparing the size and military capabilities of the Holy Roman Empire to that of the Danish holdings, Bluetooth would have every right to be wary of them. I'll make sure to include a visual of this on my website so you can take a look for yourself. At the helm of this powerful empire was King Otto I, or Otto the Great, who in 962 was crowned Emperor of the Romans by Pope John XII, a militaristic yet pious leader that had been making it his mission to champion and expand Christianity, by force if needed, to all nations near and far. Certainly an ominous threat to Harald Bluetooth and Denmark's sovereignty, a threat that was ever present throughout his reign. Wisely, Bluetooth took actions to placate Otto and get off his religious crosshairs. In 965, Bluetooth became one of the first reigning Scandinavian kings to be baptized in the Christian faith, including his five-year-old son Svein. In fact, Bluetooth took the further step of selecting the baptismal name of Otto for Svein in honor of the Holy Roman Emperor, though Svein himself never actually used the name in any capacity throughout his lifetime. Around this time, Svein was a young boy and was likely being educated in things like history, farming, shipbuilding, geography, and early principles of seamanship, during which his father was consistently off and on the move, preventing him from spending really much time with his son at all. Bluetooth had a lot of things he was juggling with, like completing the unification of Denmark and continuing to demonstrate his newfound devotion to Christianity. For example, by commissioning churches to be built in his lands, thereby satisfying Otto's mission and preventing any overt actions from the Holy Roman Empire. Bluetooth then took the further step of allowing German Christian missionaries from the city of Bremen into Denmark to begin the task of converting the populace. This, however, came with the unfortunate byproduct of the clergy believing that it was also their right to be immersed in the Danish political realm as well, according to the customs and power that they wielded within the Holy Roman Empire. Of course, to the Danish inhabitants that had no sight of the political reasoning and rationale, this was largely being met with hesitation. To put it lightly, in some instances, outright anger, rage, and violence over these German missionaries coming into their towns and villages, only to tell them that their beliefs in the Norse gods were ill-placed. This would prove to be a problem for Bluetooth in future years, discord among the population that Spain would later manipulate to use against his father. The thing is, Bluetooth really had little choice in the matter. Either convert and allow Christianity to come in, or flirt with the disaster of the neighboring behemoth unleashing a crusade upon his lands. With the unification of Denmark completed, and its Christianization underway, from the mid-960s onwards, he opportunistically looked towards Norway, due to it having been exchanged through the hands of a number of leaders in a short period of time, therefore rife with discord and contested leadership, presenting 
the perfect opportunity for a powerful ruler to swoop in and take firm hold of the lands, which in 970 was exactly what Bluetooth did, conquering Norway, more specifically the region known as Viken in the Middle Ages. A huge and the most populous tract of land located in modern southeastern Norway. From that point onwards, the Danes considered Viken to be the northernmost province of Denmark, and would continue to lay claim to it until 1241. Although relatively close to Denmark, separated by the Skagerrak Strait running between the southeast coast of Norway and the northern point of the Jutland Peninsula, Bluetooth assigned an ally of his, Hakon Sigurdsson, who had played a key role in helping him conquer Norway, as a vassal to rule on his behalf, sending regular financial tributes back to Denmark. Because Bluetooth couldn't be everywhere at once to administer his expanding kingdom. And things were starting to heat up with the Germans at the border in southern Jutland. In 973, the Holy Roman Emperor Otto the Great died and was succeeded by his son Otto II, who was intent on following his father's militant footsteps and conversion of others to Christianity, and likely to some degree wanting to immediately establish himself as a force to be reckoned with by throwing the weight of his mighty empire around, including in Denmark against Bluetooth. Otto targeted the Danish city of Hedeby in modern-day northern Germany. At the time, Hedeby was a large city of trade in the region and extremely lucrative for whoever held it, which is why Otto was looking to capture it. In 974, Otto's armies marched against Denmark and met Bluetooth's forces at the Danewerk, a 30-kilometer earthenwork system of Danish fortifications, walls, and high embankments, spotted with wooden palisades, bordering the two nations. Otto's army was unable to break through the Danish fortifications, so he changed tactics by keeping the attack going as a diversion while peeling off a portion of his forces to sail around the obstacle, landing to the north of the elaborate defensive structures. Otto then followed this up by decisively winning a large battle there and ultimately took the city of Hedeby. Although Bluetooth would, nine years later, regain the city, this loss against the Holy Roman Empire had some serious overtones. First, Hakon Sigurdsson, Bluetooth's vassal ruler in Norway, who joined in the battle as part of the peace negotiations, was forced to renounce his devotion to the Norse gods and convert to Christianity, and then even bring along a group of German missionaries when traveling back to Norway. Hakon resented this greatly and believed Bluetooth to have lost his way. As soon as he returned to Norway, he returned to the Norse gods, immediately sent the missionaries packing, and stopped sending tribute to Bluetooth effectively turning Norway into an independent nation. Secondly, while Bluetooth had long been a builder of public works and forts throughout his lands, the fear and might of the empire to the south saw him, and for good reason I would add in, aggressively accelerate and expand the construction of defenses to strengthen his hold on the Danish domains, which placed great strains both economically and from a manpower standpoint on his people and their regional leaders. As I'm sure you can tell by now, to say that Bluetooth had a lot on his plate is most definitely an understatement, dealing with 
the discontent with Christianity being pushed on his people, planning how to retake Norway from Hakan Sigurdsson, all the while keeping the power-hungry Holy Roman Empire at bay, including building extensive fortification projects. In the middle of all of this, and as a result of the heavy burden of leadership, he was unable to spend time with and form a good solid relationship with his son, who was about 15 around the year 975. Some of this may be attributed to a personality conflict, whereas King Harald Bluetooth was reportedly severe and authoritative, Svein, on the other hand, was naturally charismatic, fun-loving and rebellious, with people gravitating to him. Whatever the reason, father and son had a strained relationship, and many of the Viking sagas and most of the historical accounts tend to support this notion. For example, in the 11th century history called the Encomium M. Regine, it was stated that the divine power granted Svein such great favor that even as a boy he was held by all in close affection and was hated only by his father. In the attempt to discipline and toughen up his party-loving son, what did Bluetooth do? He shipped Svein off to military school. I guess the Viking Age equivalent of that. Bluetooth sent Svein to be fostered by someone else during these formative years, so that his future successor could complete his training and education, especially in terms of military leadership, combat, and seafaring. Although, this would ultimately unfold into a decision that would come back to haunt him, and quite literally spark his demise. Svein was sent to the formidable Viking leader Palnatokje, who was the chieftain of the island of Finn, which is the third largest island in Denmark. He was an ardent supporter of the Norse gods, and perhaps more importantly, founder of the famed and feared Joms Vikings. These Joms Vikings must have been something to behold, a legendary order of Viking mercenaries whose services could be obtained, but only for those able to pay their exorbitant fees they were highly selective in terms of admissions into the order, with membership granted only to the fiercest of Nordic warriors of proven valor. Once admitted, they were required to adhere to a strict code of conduct or be expelled from the order, taking vows promising to defend their brothers and relentlessly avenge their deaths and never retreat from battle, unless outnumbered significantly. The Joms Vikings were renowned as an outstandingly effective fighting force, coordinated and deadly in battle, which of course is why Spain was being fostered in this environment. And as he grew older, he earned the right to be admitted into this order, at least temporarily since he was the successor of the Danish crown, also gaining the moniker of Forkbeard. But it went much deeper than that for this future Viking king, in that under the guidance of Palnatokje, Forkbeard also found a trusted father figure that would have profound impacts on his life, actions, and future conduct. In the years leading up to this point in time, Palnatokje and the Yomis Vikings were clearly in support of Bluetooth's reign and leadership, but cracks in the supports were starting to form, because Palnatokje, as an ardent believer in the Norse faith, was growing increasingly dismayed with Bluetooth's push of Christianity, regardless of his reasoning for doing so. And it was reported that Bluetooth was increasingly making unreasonable demands of Palnatokje, 
although it remains unclear exactly what these demands were. The Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus relates how Palnatokje was forced by King Harald Bluetooth to use a single arrow to shoot an apple from his own son's head to demonstrate his archery prowess. However, I believe that this was more so used as a fable to illustrate the idea of making unreasonable demands. All of this, though, helped to underscore another emerging notion. As much of an impact that Palnatokje had on Forkbeard, Forkbeard was also having a profound impact on Palnatokje, who increasingly saw his protege as someone worthy of his allegiance. Into the early 980s, when Forkbeard was in his early 20s, the strained relationship that he had with his father soured even further. In one instance, reportedly exploding into heated arguments over the fire pit in his father's hall, with Bluetooth shouting that Svein would never succeed him. For example, also in the Encomium M.A. Regine, it was stated that when Svein grew to be a young man, he increased daily in the love of people, and accordingly his father's envy increased more and more, so that he wished not in secret, but openly to cast him out, affirming by oath that he should not rule after him. So, for Svein, what to do, what to do? The son of a king groomed for leadership his entire life, but then with the prospect of his rule recently ripped out from under him. Well, for Svein, he vowed to take it back for himself, leaving his father's hearth and began sowing the seeds of rebellion, stoking a civil war with the help of Palnatokje. It's not clear what ignited this explosion between father and son. Some historical accounts suggesting it was Svein's unruly behavior that would have so deeply conflicted with Bluetooth's authoritative ways, and another potential is certainly a clash of personality types. Or perhaps, what I think is far more likely is that it stemmed from Svein questioning aspects of his father's rule, asserting that he could do a far better job, his confidence now rising up with an influential leader like Palnatoki sitting in his corner. Why could that be, you ask? Well, there are certainly elements of his role that we had touched upon a little earlier that were increasingly creating discord among some of his Danish subjects, and Bluetooth had to be feeling the strain of so many difficult situations, in particular those German missionaries that he had led into the country who were busy imposing Christianity on the Danes, which was not being well received. These religious figures also increasingly immersed themselves into Denmark's political landscape, thereby chipping away at Denmark's sovereignty. And of course, there was also the ongoing ominous threat of the Holy Roman Empire, which had, in recent years, led to an altercation that did not go well for the Danes, resulting in the loss of the city of Hedeby, and that had ultimately caused Bluetooth to go off on a fortification-building frenzy demanding regional leaders to commit resources, both financial and labor-wise, to their construction. As the Danish medieval historian Svein Agesen wrote, They who together with Svein were leaders of the fleet were fed up with Harald's rule, partly because he was favorably minded to Christianity, partly because he placed extraordinary burdens on the common people. Svein would, of course, opportunistically leverage these issues and those disaffected with his father's rule to raise an army, 
who rallied behind him in support of his bid for power, with Palnatokie helping to put together a big enough force. However, for Bluetooth, despite the challenges facing his kingdom, was king for a reason, arguably the most powerful king in all of Scandinavia at that point. Well, maybe until his son kicked off a civil war. But Bluetooth could still muster an impressive army, and was in fact in the process of gathering his forces in anticipation of the epic battle ahead against his son Forkbeard that would determine the fate of the kingdom and who would be at the helm. In late 986, the stage was set for the showdown, with Forkbeard, Palantokia, and additional Danish allies loyal to Forkbeard on the hunt for where Bluetooth and his army were gathering. While there are disagreements on where this battle took place and the numbers involved in the altercation, the prevailing commentary from the Viking sagas seems to indicate that Bluetooth had the numerical advantage, although Forkbeard had the elite Yams Vikings on his side to help even the odds with some placing the location of the encounter on the cold waters of the Isafjord that cuts deep into the Danish island of Zealand, roughly 60 kilometers west to the present-day city of Copenhagen. Upon Palnatokia's scouts learning that Bluetooth was gathering his army along the shores of the fjord, he gathered his ships and warriors, also sending urgent communications back to Forkbeard to link up with him. Once united in full strength, they rode into the fjord. Drum beats increasing in cadence to quicken the pace of their longships, cutting through the choppy waters. Forkbeard leading the way, moving steadily towards where his father's troops were stationed, aiming for his father's ship. In response, Bluetooth began shouting commands, war horns blaring. In short order, he and his warriors were aboard their longships and began rowing headlong into the opposing forces. This ocean battle between father and son was exceedingly brutal. Ships smashing together in the icy cold bay, arrows flying through the air. The war cries and shouts of Danish warriors echoing aloud while jumping into each other's ships, cleaving away at each other with swords and axes. A terrifyingly brutal encounter, lasting all day, that eventually grounded into a standstill with no clear winner. In the midst of this confusion of tangled longships, King Harold Bluetooth received several grievous wounds, forcing his most loyal warriors to flee and rush their king away to safety. However, Bluetooth would succumb to his injuries just a few days later. His death leaving no other viable options for the Danish crown other than Svein. As a quick side note, sifting through the different sagas and histories, there are a number of ways put forward on how Bluetooth received the grievous wounds that would later lead to his demise. Perhaps the most unflattering was that, after the sea battle, which ended for the day with no clear winner, both sides retired for the night, setting up encampments on land. But then, Palnatoke, that very night went out in search of Bluetooth, finding him at a campfire. After watching him for a while, waiting for the right moment, Palnatoke notched his arrow and hit Bluetooth right in the butt, just as he reached over the fire to grab some food, or, as another put it, as he was going to the bathroom in some nearby bushes. 
whatever the correct sequence was regarding his death, everyone is at least aligned that Bluetooth did indeed die shortly after this battle. Followed by the 26-year-old's feigned forkbeard being proclaimed as the King of Denmark and Norway. Although, the title of King of Norway was definitely reaching maybe a little too much, since it was clearly in Hakon Sigurdsson's firm grasp at that point, acting as an independent nation. As a side note, we lose the trail on what happened to Palnatoke after the victory at the Isafjord because there were no reports that he fell in the fight. However, it looks like he may have then passed on the leadership of the Yums Vikings to one of its esteemed members, a warrior by the name of Sigvaldi Strutharaldsson. Following these events, Forkbeard held a massive coronation feast, which turned into an ale and mead soaked drinking fest. Alcohol fueled vows being issued out to the gods, both Norse and Christian making bold claims to mark the significance and glory of his future reign. As mentioned in the saga of Olaf Tryggvason, King Svein then stepped into his father's seat, vowing that he would go to England with his hosts and slay King Æthelred. Sigvaldi, as the new leader of the famed Yams Vikings, and not to be outdone in terms of bold claims, after draining his horn of mead, slammed it down on the wooden table and vowed, to go off to Norway and slay Hakon, regaining this territory in the name of the newly installed king. Right after King Svein's coronation, Sigvaldi, true to his word, readied his Yams Vikings and some additional allies, approximately 60 ships holding around 6,000 warriors in all, and despite it being the middle of winter, set sail towards Norway to cast down the renegade vassal Hakon Sigurdsson. But things didn't go very well for Sigvaldi in the attempt, because not only was his army outnumbered, being that Hakon was able to cobble together a larger force of around 10,000 troops in 180 ships, but in the encounter that would later be called the Battle of Hjørngaver, just as the Joms Vikings were about to launch an assault on the opposing Norwegian fleet off the coast of modern-day Sunmur, Norway, a terrible winter storm came on. Snow squalls, hail, and fierce winds hitting the faces of the attackers and inhibiting their ability to sail forward in a cohesive manner. Hakon and his Norwegian troops were able to exploit this gift that landed on their laps, resulting in a resounding defeat for the Joms Vikings, with many of their number killed in the encounter. But even worse for Forkbeard, was that this loss allowed the renegade vassal to tighten his grip on Norway. So, not a great start for this new Danish king. And things were about to get rockier still in the early years of his reign. Although it wasn't all bad. Around this time he married a Polish princess by the name of Gunhild of Wenden, who soon after they married bore him two sons in pretty quick succession. Harald followed by Knut both of which would grow up to become future kings. And in 987, for at least the next three years, everything was relatively stable in Denmark. Like his father before him, he continued the building of churches in Denmark to keep the Holy Roman Empire satisfied of their devotion. But unlike his father, he showed a great deal more tolerance for those that held on to the Norse gods. And as you can probably assume by now, 
Forkbeard wasn't exactly a devoted Christian himself, and took his foot off the accelerator in terms of supporting German clergy to more forcibly convert the populace to the new faith. But it went much deeper than that, because he was concerned with the amount of political and cultural influence that the German clergy were wielding within his domains, impinging on Danish sovereignty. So he concocted a strategy to restrain this, and quite simple really, but also undoubtedly effective, by simply casting the German clergy out of his lands, but then replacing them with English-born missionaries of Danish ancestry. As alluded to earlier in the episode, at this time there was a large Scandinavian presence in northeastern England, a huge tract of land called the Danelaw, that had been settled for roughly a hundred years, meaning that it was rather easy to find Danes and other Scandinavians that had relatives in these lands. So Svein began recruiting these missionaries to come back to their homeland en masse to occupy the places previously held by these German missionaries, thereby still maintaining adherence to the Christian faith and holding off the wrath of the Holy Roman Empire. But by enlisting missionaries of Danish ancestry, that would continue the conversion in a less abrasive way, understanding the Norse faith and perhaps providing a less obtrusive or scary path to Christianity for his subjects. And most importantly of all, not so involved in the politics of his kingdom. This strategy ended up working like a charm, although it did end up creating some enemies for him in a different sense, invoking the literary wrath of religious historians in Germany, namely Adam of Bremen who was one of the celebrated historians of his time, a historian that was certainly not impartial, and that would vilify Forkbeard for eternity. Adam of Bremen was dismayed with what Svein was doing to the German missionaries, and so, in retribution, would give Svein some particularly bad press and disparage him considerably in the historical texts that he was writing. Worse for us, though, is that this account, which can't be dismissed outright, muddies the water significantly, especially in our understanding of the sequence of events that would unfold between 990 to 995. And then, when layered with the Viking sagas, there is a ton of confusion as to what is happening at this time, but I'll do my best so that we can wade through it together. Around the year 990, the Adam of Bremen account states that Forkbeard is pushed out and forcibly exiled from his own kingdom by German military leaders, those that much preferred Harold Bluetooth's rule, resulting in them deposing Forkbeard and supporting the installation of King Eric VI of Sweden, also known as Eric the Victorious, in his place, pointing to his treatment of the German clergy and claiming wider persecution of Denmark's Christian inhabitants. Adam then goes on to relate that Forkbeard would live in Scotland for a number of years, before fully embracing Christianity, thus gaining the God-imbued power or legitimacy to come back and become a worthy king. While there may be grains of truth to what Adam of Bremen documented, some modern historians have a different interpretation suggesting that Forkbeard wasn't exactly absent from Denmark for the entire next five years, pointing to his funding and commissioning of churches to be constructed at that time in Denmark. But then there's other histories as well, like the 11th century Anglo-Saxon chronicles, 
that indicate Forkbeard was indeed away from Denmark for prolonged periods of time, busy in England doing something not at all associated with embracing Christianity more fully. The sequence that I think makes the most sense somewhat unites these conflicting accounts. Around 990, in order to do things like building churches, forts, and financing the retaking of Norway, Forkbeard was in need of building up his financial standing in order to support these ventures. Of course, there were no banks to go to for loans, and even if there was, certainly none that would trust a Viking to repay any funds handed over. However, one-time-honored tradition for Vikings at this time to raise capital was to go out and simply take it by raiding on foreign shores in England. In the next episode, we'll learn more about Forkbeard's exploits in England, brutally scouring its land of riches through prolonged raids. But that also invites almost complete disaster at home, leaving his Danish kingdom vulnerable for another Viking warlord to appear and usurp leadership in his absence. Forced into a corner, Forkbeard then sees a change in the winds of fortune, which he exploits demonstrating his cunning ways and ability to play the long game to a masterful degree, allowing him to pounce on a couple of lucky breaks and then take advantage of these opportunities fully in order to retake Denmark and then Norway, uniting the kingdom that his father had once built, which ultimately clears the way for him to then concentrate on chipping away at fulfilling his coronation vow, looking towards the English throne. And much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And lastly, you can head over on to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on future warlords that you think I should do an episode on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com.